everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Life, people, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That is true. Yes, it is. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the Internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life. You know, what it is just to be a person facing a blank page. But also video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. My conversation with the cartoonist Reza Farzmond is up there now. He of poorly drawn lines. He's got a new uh, graphic novel out called City Monster. And he and I talked about a lot of cool stuff. What makes something funny about the rise of uh, online comics. And, uh, and on many, and other things as well. He was an interesting guy. Check it out. Go check it out at authormagazine.org. That's where you can find it all. Also, we're funded by the wonderful people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association. They have been supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. And, uh, well, we got a little conference coming up in January. Kind of a mini conference, mini online conference, where I will be focusing on the craft and business. No pitching. Don't have to pitch. Don't think about pitching for this. Just think about writing and about learning about the business. So, for instance, I'm going to be teaching a class on writing a book proposal, (laughs) a book proposal. It can be fun. It can be. And I'll teach you how. Yes, I will. So if you're interested in that or just joining the PNWA, go over to PNWA.org. Yes. Well, uh, good guest today. Christopher Zida. He, uh, Christopher, he served as Disney's chief investment officer, overseeing more than $4 billion of company investment. Holy crap, that's a lot of money. In 2007, he, uh, he launched Mosaic, a boutique investment management firm. Uh, he also serves on the board of visitors for, U- for the UCLA Department of English, the advisory board for veterans in media and entertainment, and the advisory board for the Landing Zone Grace Warrior Retreat. That's not why he's here with us today, although that's all interesting stuff. No, he's also the author of a new memoir. It's a good one. It's called The Storm, One Voice from the AIDS Generation. He's here with us now. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, you're alive. You're alive, so you could write this book and talk to me. That was not always a guaranteed thing, was it? No, it was not. No, I'm I'm glad that I was. I'm here to be be here today to talk about it. Well, I was thinking about this because you and I are close to the same age, and I was sort of coming of age. I'm straight, but I was coming of age, and I was, and that was really so in the air in '81, '82, '83, '84, '85 when I was a young man, and you came out and 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 and. It, sort of accepted you were gay and started living in that, in that lifestyle right in the teeth of it. I mean, right smack in the middle of it. Yeah. Like, was it 83, 81? I'm trying to get my, right. my numbers. Right. Well, I came, I came out, I came out in the spring of 1983 and yeah. um, really just as AIDS was starting to really, really mushroom. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So I did come out right into the buzzsaw of AIDS. Yeah. That's incredible. And so you've written about it. Um, we're going to, we're going to get to the memoir, but you, interestingly, you, 
writing was really the thing for you for a while when you were a young, young man. That, that was the assumption, yeah, that you were going to be a writer. Right. I mean, I, I was an English literature major at UCLA. Uh, I'd set my sights on a writing career, uh, everything from movies to plays to novels, and uh, really was geared up to do that upon graduation in 1984. Yeah. Uh, and I fell in love, and I fell in love along the way. And um, two years later, uh, my life took a big U-turn because of AIDS. And, um, yeah. and I felt like I needed to get a more stable career, one that paid a lot better, um, that ultimately led me to shelve my writing career and uh, get an MBA in finance from the UCLA Business School. What was that like for you? Because, you know, it's a, it's a big dream, the writing, and getting an MBA, very different. It can be just as satisfying and interesting, but it's a very different experience. So how was that for you emotionally? You it was terrible. Speech. I mean, um, that was a, yeah. it was a terrible, you know, the death of a dream of life is a very hard thing to go through, and especially yeah. at the same time, I was I was dealing with my own mortality. I was worried that I would yeah. come down with AIDS and die from it as well. And uh, so there was a lot of really big life stuff happening all at the same time for me. And um, I, I realized that I, I needed a lot of money to pay for health care for my partner who was, who was yeah. already sick and for me. Yeah. And, I, and it was a very limited set of choices I had. And, and I chose to go to business school. But it was, very, it was a very difficult decision for me to do, but I had to do it. You know what's amazing, Chris, is that you had success doing it. Because, you know, it, it's like, it's not, you, to, 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 to thrive doing something, you, you can't hate it, I don't think. I don't think you can, like, absolutely resent it, I don't think, and have some success doing it. So somewhere along the line, you had to make some peace with that decision, and though that couldn't have been easy, or else I can't see you doing as well as you did in this, in this field. Well, what the... The, the interesting thing that happened was I got into business school and um, I thought business school was really easy. The classes that everybody <laughs> thought were hard were easy for me. And then um, when I ended up graduating uh, and I got hired full time at the Walt Disney Company, um, yeah. I got placed into the Treasury Department, which is in the finance career world. That is the equivalent of winning the lottery because that's the best, most interesting finance part of any company, especially a growth company like Disney was in 1989. Uh-huh. And um, on my literally on my first day of working at Disney, I was responsible for working on almost a billion dollars of investments, and it was oh. a passion that I discovered that I had that I didn't know I had, and um, I loved it, and it was I, I was good at it, and it was really fun, and um, and so I wasn't a writer, but I was uh, really enjoying learning about all these very sophisticated investment strategies, and I also had a job that I did a little bit of writing because part of my job was writing executive speeches for all the Disney executives that had to speak to Wall Street. So I had a little bit of writing in my world, but it wasn't the writing that I had wanted to do originally. Right. Um, But I, but I discovered a passion I didn't know that I had. That is interesting. And so uh, what, what, so, I mean, without getting into the weeds of it, what is interesting about investment? I mean, it's a whole different, I mean, well, actually, let me ask you this. Is it a different part now that you've written this book and you got re, you reconnected with your writer self? And I will tell you, I write memoir and personal essay now, so I know that how creative an act the memoir is. Um, but it, do you use a different kind of part of your mind when you're doing the investment stuff, or is it is there overlap? Oh, there's absolutely overlap. I think one of the things that 
sets me apart from other people who do invest investing is that I do have a creative mindset. And so yeah. my entire finance career, I've always been able to apply a sense of creativity to financial problems and financial solutions that other people don't necessarily do out of the gate. Um, right. I think that's part of my, part of my own personal secret sauce in my own career. Um, and I, you know, and I really do thrive on when somebody says something's impossible to do, that's sort of when I get excited about it. <laughs> right. 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 Well, and, and do you think it's also the way you think about things? Cause you know, the creative part of the way creative people think the, the, the way it goes is you can't like the, uh, SAT type tests are hard because the creative mind will say, well, all these answers could be right if you look at them from a certain way, whereas an analytic mind is zeros down the right answer. So do you think your mind is less, I'm sure it's analytic, but do you think it's thinking in terms of possibility rather than nailing down the right answer? Um, I think it's both. I mean, I think okay. to be a good investor, you have to think about possibility because you don't always know that you don't know the future. You don't know what's going to happen to a stock or a bond or any other type of investment, but you have to have a theory about it. And that's where some of the, yeah. some of the creativity comes into play. But you also need to ground it with the analytic piece of the actual numbers and the actual due diligence that you've done. Right. Um, and I think that's um, that's what makes investment management so fun for me. Right. Well, and so was while while you were doing this and you were dealing with all the sort of chaos of your partner and aides and and you're having this career big career which I'm sure took a lot of your time. Did you did you were you still writing at all or did that really just completely go underground? I mean, aside it completely from stopped. Speeches, it just completely stopped. It, com okay. it completely stopped. Once I once I made the decision to go to business school, the last the real last real thing I wrote was my essay for my business school right. application and then, right. um, and then it was all business school and getting a job and getting a summer internship and getting hired full time and then building my career right um, although my career at Disney did have an element of some writing in it right but not but not it's different it's different it's like different kind of writing yeah it's different and and do you remember what the essay was about do you remember your essay to get into business school I don't <laughs> You I, I really don't. I really I don't. Okay. All right. So, so, however, time goes by, and we were talking about this before the show, and it is interesting. I couldn't think of many memoirs about this time, about the 80s and 90s, early 90s, when, when really it was a death sentence, it seemed like. I knew some people. I knew one guy who had it who's gone on to – he had it in the early nineties and he, he's gone on to have a full life and it never, you know, the, I think that's right when the medication was starting to become available. Um, but so there have not been many memoirs written about that time uh, that I could think of. Uh, and you were mentioning just some that have been in the that written while it was happening. Yeah. Yes. There's, I mean, there's a couple that I know of the, you know, borrowed time, which is pretty famous um, was written by somebody during the early days, early years of the AIDS crisis. And then, um, and the band played on, of course, is, is a seminal work. Um, but there, they were written as earlier in the AIDS crisis. Um, and as far as other memoirs, I'm sure there must be some, um, but I purposely didn't research any of them or read any of them right. because I didn't want to be influenced in my own writing by anything in any of those books. Yeah, that was smart. That was smart, Chris, because it's very easy. Well, you've got, you got to just tell it the way you want to tell it. And uh, talk to me about um, 
Talk to me about the first uh, the decision to write it. When? How long had it been bubbling around that you should write about that time? Um, bubbling around, probably. If well, it I wrote a, at all. I wrote a. Well, it bubbled a little bit. I wrote a journal entry for myself on the 20-year anniversary of Stephen dying, which was 2011, and I basically shared it with some close family members who had never really known the whole story. But it was only 13 pages, and. Um, and then I, over the years, I shared it with a couple of friends. And then there were a couple of my friends who really worked on me to write a book. They said they, they thought it would be a good book. I didn't believe it would be a good book. And I also didn't believe I'd be able to remember. I also right. didn't believe I'd really remember what had happened in any sort of detail for a book. Yeah. And I was afraid of the, you know, the, it's such a painful period of my life from 26 years earlier. I didn't right. know that I wanted to tell the world all these terrible things that I had done or had gone through. And yeah. so there was a whole coming out process, but ultimately, uh, one of my friends really pushed, pressured me and promised that she would read every chapter as I wrote it to <laughs> to be a cheerleader and um, right. would help me get an agent if I did it. So I, in September of 2017, I tackled it and I gave myself six months to write it because I knew it would be enormously emotional and cathartic and very painful. And I did yeah. not want to live in that world more than six months. Okay. Was it emotional and painful and cathartic? Yes. Yes. It was uh, all those things. Um, almost immediately after I started writing, I got a terrible cold. I had a, I was yep. sick for two yep. months. Yeah. Terrible bronchitis that I, that I'm yep. prone to get. And um, as I was digging out these memories, and I and I was trying very hard to remember what happened and put it in the right order, so I created a couple of mechanisms to to sort of provoke the memories to come out. One of them yeah. being um, a music playlist of the of the era that I oh, listened yeah. to because yeah. Yeah. my memories are tied to music in a lot of ways. And I also researched everything that had happened historically in Los Angeles, in the U.S., and in the world, in AIDS history during that whole time period because that all helped me remember what happened in my own life. Um, uh, but I got a very, very terrible cold. It was very emotionally cathartic. And by about mid-December, I realized how much it was really helping me because yep. I started yep. to feel really good about it. Yep. It was a really yep. interesting switch because the first couple of months were a slog, and especially yeah. writing the first three chapters were really, especially the third chapter was very, very pa painful and difficult for me. But once yep. I got into chapter five, I, I was like, this is really helping me. I feel better about this, and I was excited yep. about it, and and I got I spent more and more time on it as time went by. And um, so it was a wonderful, freeing experience because now I can talk about this part of my life to strangers and yeah. not be not feel weird about it. Whereas before I would barely talk to my own brother about it. Yeah. Yeah. The memoir is a fantastic is, I think it's the best form of therapy. Uh, if you wanted to, you don't want to hire someone, if you don't want to hire a therapist, because you have to tell the story in a way that's in service to something greater than, Oh my God, it was horrible. Poor me. It has to be in service to humanity in some way, whether you were thinking that way or not, that's the only way to tell the story. It has to be about more than you. Yeah. Does that make sense? I, I think it's the best if you, if for anybody who's listening, who's ever had any sort of trauma or PTSD on any issue, cause I had, a, I actually had PTSD about eight. Sure. I think sure. it is the most helpful therapy to write a 
to write a story or write a book, whatever you can, even if you don't plan on publishing it, because yeah. as long as you can really be true to yourself and be honest and even write down the horrible, painful stuff that doesn't make you look good, um, because it's very freeing. I remember there are times where I would write something down and I would think, oh, I can never publish this this thing mm-hmm. that I just wrote. Mm-hmm. And then I would leave it on the page and I'd come back to it a week later and it wouldn't be as scary on the page a week later. And then as time went by, I thought, you know what? No one's even going to care about this. I care because I lived through it and I'm embarrassed about it. But I bet you no one's even going to notice it. And and that's true. And it was really wonderful therapy. I'm so glad I did it. Well, here's the the great trick with memoir, uh, which I tell all my students, and I believe it completely, is when the reader reads your book, they're not reading about you. They're always reading about themselves. They're always reading about themselves. And they are... Putting, they're going into your shoes to have their own life experience. They're finding themselves in your story. So in the end, it's not even about you to them. Not really. Although if they love it, they will thank you and say, oh, that's so good. But they'll thank you because of something that changed in them. And that's the beauty of the memoirs. In a way, you're not even, you aren't even in the story in the way, in the char- in the way you think you are. Does that make sense? Yes, that's that's an interesting perspective. I hadn't really thought about it that way, um, but I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. So, so when you so so when you put stuff down, was it were you like was it shame that you were like oh I can't, no one can read this what will they think about me was it was it just shame or so this is so painful they won't want to put themselves that they won't want to read this story what was the stuff you didn't think you wanted to share with people it was it was it was shame and embarrassment and. Um, you know, it's like writing about the fact that, you know, my partner's parents stole all my stuff, you know, and, and right. how horribly shocking, how right. horribly shocking that was to me at the time. And, and sure. that, you know, we had a giant lawsuit fighting about nothing. And, um, right. you know, and that I, you know, I really, and I really put them through the ringer. And like, there's a lot of things in there where when I first wrote it down, I thought, oh, I'm going to be such an unlikable person in this book. And then, um, and then as, but then I had to put it in there because it was true. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and cause one of the, one of the rules I had for myself writing was I was going to tell the truth, even the painful and embarrassing truth and yeah. hope for the best. Yeah. Oh, good. I like that. And hope for the best. Yeah. You know, that's a very optimistic, uh, that's a very optimistic point of view because you're not trying to control the future. You're just going to let it be what it is. Well, I wasn't also sure. I also wasn't not sure that I would publish it when I finished it. I was right. I w- I didn't write it initially for sure that I was going to publish it. I I I wanted to let it ferment and I wanted to see yeah. how certain people who were close to me reacted to it. Yeah. Um, because I didn't want to publish it if I got a lot of negative reaction from some people who I really care about. And yeah. uh, that's why I have at the beginning of the book, there's so many people who read it in the acknowledgement section. Cause I wanted all those people to sort of say, we read it, we like it, we think it's okay, go for it. And, um, that's good. and that was that's part good. of my own coming out process about the book. Right. Coming out, coming out. I was interviewing, um, God, I'm blanking on his name. He wrote tales of the city. What's his name? What's his name? Uh, you know, oh, the author. Of oh my gosh! Story. God dang it! I'm like one of the first. I'm terrible. First, I'm, yeah, I, no, um, you know, Armistead okay. Mopin. Yes, Armistead Mopin. That's right. Yep. And it was interesting. We were having a great conversation because he came out like w- before a lot of people were coming out publicly. I think it was in the '70s, sometime. And we were talking about mm-hmm. com- the concept of coming out. And I think, I think everybody comes out in some way or another. 
I mean, it's one thing to come out as gay, but you have to come out as to who you actually are, not who your parents think you are or your church thinks you are or your friends think you who you actually are. I think everybody has to go through that on some level. What do you think? I agree. I agree. I think that uh, whether you are starting college as a chemistry major and your real love is English literature, yeah. and you got to come back and face your parents and tell them you're going to major in yeah. that's a coming out in itself, yep. or yeah. that you want to make a, a career change when you're 40 and you're tired of being a lawyer and you want to become a photographer. Yeah, yeah, um, that's yeah. A coming out it, too. But yeah, I think. It's, uh, I think but I wrote. I write about. I write about several. Um, oops, sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I write about several coming out experiences in my book. I have four four really big coming out uh, sections yeah. that I talk about. Yeah. But um, it's a process for everybody, I believe. Yeah, I, I was I was listening to um, uh, oh now I'm blanking on Eddie Izzard's memoir, and he's you know this guy's done all this stuff, and he's just such a brave guy. But he still says the biggest moment of his life was when he let himself put a dress on and step out onto the streets of London you know, in what he would call drag then as a trans person, that that remained the biggest decision he ever had to make in his life. After all the things he's done, that was the moment. See, and that's a really, it's a really interesting perspective because it may not sound like a big deal, but for him it was. And I think for everybody's coming out, it's it's a big deal to them, whatever it may be. It could be something as simple as somebody just deciding that they want to go skydiving. Right, um, but it could right. be terrifying for them, and everybody's like, "Oh, go, go ahead, go skydiving." Yeah, yeah. But yeah. and that's what makes the human condition so interesting. Yeah, you, um, you know, it's funny. I was going to use these words, but you used it yourself, which is PTSD. Uh, and I thought, you know, God, it must have been. How could you not get PTSD when death is so present, and you never know, like you're going to war, if this is the day you're going to wake up and get shot. To some degree. You must have been living with, is this the day I'm going to learn maybe one of my friends or me? It comes, it, it, it's got me. Was it just living in you all the time? Yes. Yes. Even for yeah. many, many years afterwards. I mean, sure. and even, you know, even today I still think, well, I, you know, all those tests that I right. took along the way, they could be wrong. Who knows? Right. You know? right. Um, right. And um, it is just, I'm definitely scarred for it, scarred with it yeah. for life on some level, although I've made it work and I under, you know, I can, I can function and, and move on. But isn't PTSD, I, I don't, I'm not an expert on this at all, obviously, but it's to some degree, like I think of the soldiers who have, who suffered with it, they're kind of living in the past. They're still living with the experience. Like they haven't left the jungle of, of Vietnam or whatever. And one of the challenges for you is to live in the present and to, and I think memoir can be helpful like that. It can reframe the past in a less painful way so that you can be present in the here and now. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, I'm not an expert on PTSD by any stretch of the imagination. And right. I didn't even think I had it myself when I started writing. It really occurred to me several months in that what I'd been dealing with was some version of PTSD. Yeah. But I think um, 
going back to what happened that might be causing, like I was functioning. I had a really great career sure. going. I mean, everybody who met me after Stephen died in 1991, I mean, every new person never heard about what had happened and they, they right. thought I was relatively fine and normal and I functioned, but it right. was still inside me. And I still had a lot of sadness and a lot of grief and a lot of anger about yeah. things and writing and just going back and writing this book and remembering what happened and putting it all in the right order and trying to understand how it shaped me into who I am today, it was enormously freeing. I learned so much about myself in the process. Yeah. Like I really what? did. What did you learn about yourself? Well, so I never really I – I, I wrote a lot in this book about my childhood and my my family and how I grew yeah. up. And, and I really did not ever consciously understand how I was from a very young age – challenging authority as much as I do. I was arguing with my teachers and arguing with my catechism teachers, and I made my mom quit smoking when when I was 14 years old, (laughs) which is usually the opposite. Usually they're trying to stop the 14-year-old. And I realized that from a really young age, I was a handful. I was really a hard kid to manage. And, um, but those were the qualities that I needed to succeed in what I ultimately had to face when Stephen got sick and we were fighting insurance companies and doctors and parents and friends who were dropping us and all the things we had to deal with, that that personality that I had really was helpful. And I think it's also a personality that's helped me be um, successful relatively in my my finance career. Right. Because of just sort of a a dogged determination kind of? Yes. And I just, but it was funny to, when I realized that, you know, I was, you know, when I was six years old, I was basically, you know, yelling at my brother and sister and telling them to clean up my toys that they threw around as, a, you know, as they were fighting and, um, and, and, you know, challenging my catechism teachers about you know, yeah. the, the Roman Catholic religion and the, the flaws yeah. in it. I mean, I was definitely a handful. But a handful, but that's and interesting. My, you I, know. Think my, I think my husband would say I'm still a handful. Well, I, I bet you are. I bet you are. But that's part of, you know, my kids were hand, are handfuls, but they weren't. But the thing about like I have one kid on the spectrum and I guess they both are maybe, I don't know, perhaps. But the thing about the spectrum kids are that I love so much is they like they won't accept things. They want everything. They want to they won't accept something just because you say so. Like that doesn't make sense to me. Right. And they make you go into why are we doing this? Why is it important to talk this way? Why is it like and if you can't have an answer, maybe it's not that important. You know, maybe. Right. And I think handfuls, mm-hmm. handfuls, Chris, change the world. I believe it. They're the ones who say, wait, no, there's another way. And, and they're not easy because they don't like things as they are. So we need more handfuls like you, wherever they are. <laughs> That's great. I, I mean like that it. perspective. I mean it. Yeah. It's true. It's true. <laughs> handfuls, they, they're the ones that change stuff. It's just not easy, you know. Um, well, okay. So the book's out. Uh what the, actually, I, I I got the arc. Is it, when did when was the what was the pub date on this? I actually forgot. To get it. It's actually today. It's actually oh, the publishing oh. date is today. Today you are officially my publishing oh, date my first interview. I'm sorry, yes. I, did, I forgot to check. Well, congratulations, super congratulations. Thank you. This is it. Thank you very All very right. much. Was... Wow, so deep breath. Done it. It's out there. And so this is is this your first uh, publicity thing you've done for it? I've done uh, two podcasts over the past past few days. Okay. You're, number, right. you're the third one. All right. Well, so you're gearing up to talk to people about how do you feel? Do you are you ready to talk about it? Writing it's one thing, talking about it's another. 
I'm ready. I, I went through a period after uh, I made my final edits and they started showing me the layouts of the book and everything where I was proofreading, where every time they sent me a new draft, I'd, I would sit there and I'd think, is it too late for me to call the publisher and say I changed my mind? Um, and I went through, and then finally when they, when they sent me the galley proof, the, the paperback copy, I said, well, I guess it's really too late now to stop this. And then, um, but that's been the first thing that's jumped into my mind every time I've got a new version of the book. But um, I'm through all that now. I'm actually very excited, I'm really proud of it. Um, even if I don't end up selling a lot of copies, I'm proud that I did it and that I actually faced this part of my life and really made it right in my own mind. So I'm not afraid of it anymore. And um, I think it's, it's really great. You know, here's the thing I can tell you. The people who are meant to find this book will find it. It's the way it works. It's the way it works and it's mysterious and it's lovely. And, and you will have some hand in it because you're an ambitious guy and you're smart and you know how to do this kind of stuff. But there is a sort of magic to it where it's a thing, the book finds its way to the people who need it. So it will happen. And hopefully you hear about it, but you may not, but it will happen anyway. It's just the way it works. I guarantee it. I hope you're right. That, that would be exciting. I, I am. I am right. It's, okay. just, it's just like physics, Chris. It's just how it works. Um, all right. Well, listen. So if people want to learn about you or if they're like, I want this guy to talk to my online book group or anything like, first of all, will you do that? If someone has a book group, would you zoom in and talk to them? Absolutely. I will uh, do a Zoom. I will do a Zoom for a book group or a bookstore or a college campus or anybody who uh, wants to have a group uh, uh, with you know, I can I have to do it at night because I right. work during the day. I do run a company, um, yep. but I'm absolutely uh, anybody who thinks that my uh, me speaking would help them, I'm happy to do. And uh, they can contact me through my website. I have an author website um, which you can find on Google, and um, and, and there's an email address on there. You can email me if you want. All right, good. good. All right, I got one more question for you, Chris, and sure. it's this: what I want you to do is finish this sentence. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? Uh, it's taught me that uh, anybody can do it. Um, even if you have a crazy busy job that you're working 75 hours a week like me, um, you can make the time to do it if, if you really have a story to tell. Wow, that's a good one. It's a good one, Chris. Hey, congratulations. Congratulations. Uh, I'm so happy for you, and good luck. Thank you so much. Spread the word. Thank you very, very much, and have a wonderful afternoon. You too. Bye-bye now. Okay. Hey, that people, 75 hours a week. What's your excuse? Oh, God. That's impressive. That's impressive. All right. Well, listen, that was great. That was great, and uh, I'll be back again next week for one more. I'll take a couple weeks off, but I will be back next week. I want to thank my producer, R.J. Jeffries. Thank you, as always, R.J. And to all of you out there, go find something you love to do and do it.